0: Inclusion is about creating that workplace where people feel that they're part of the fabric of the organization, that they are connected. Belonging is that higher order state, feeling that feeling valued, feeling, you know, you can be invited to important meetings and still not feel that you can speak up and still not feel that people like you, um, you know, should be around the table. I know, I'm in the C-suite and I have those moments um, from time to time. And so all of those pieces are the elements that, I think the strongest HR partners, whether you are an HR business partner or one of the centers of excellence within HR, yes, I reinforce it, but it comes from them. And that to me is what a modern day people and culture HR team looks like.
1: That was Vice Media Chief People Officer, Daisy O'Shea Dominguez. And in this episode, Daisy and I talk about her career path, her work across DEIB, her brand new book, Inclusion Revolution, and so much more. And we'll be right back with that conversation after a brief word from our sponsor. Support for the Redefining HR podcast comes from PIN. PIN is building the world's first employee-centric communications tool, powering fast-growing companies like Shopify, Rubrik, and Sneak. Automate messages across the employee journey so you never miss an opportunity and your employees are supported every step of the way. From onboarding to becoming a new manager and more, PIN helps companies communicate at scale. Go to PINHQ.com for more information. That's pynhq.com. Reinvent communications for the distributed workforce. And now, onto the show. Hey everyone, welcome to Redefining HR Podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt. And today, I'm really excited to be joined by Daisy O'Shea Dominguez. Daisy is the Chief People Officer at Vice Media. She's an author of a new book that we're going to get into uh, and has a tremendous career and experience spanning town acquisition, people, diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging and so much more. So, Daisy, I have a lot of questions for you. First off, before I even ask, congratulations on the book.
0: Thank you so much, Lars. I, I so appreciate it and I'm thrilled to be here with you today. Yeah, so I'd love to, you know, we usually
1: start every episode with uh, an introduction um, so that the audience can get to know you uh, a little bit better. So I'd love to have you just kind of give a, an overview of your career and then we'll dig in.
0: Well, I started my career, I was just saying this, this morning to a colleague, I started my career as a credit risk analyst at Moody's Investor Service. Uh, I have a master's in public administration and I joined their public finance department when um, my first manager, Nicole Johnson, was tasked with building a small team of analysts that would be dealing with high volume, low cost deals. And she had an opportunity to single-handedly diversify the public finance department. And that was my introduction into corporate America and what would be a very, uh, very complex and very different journey from then on. I worked at Moody's for 12 years. I was a credit risk analyst for six years. I then transitioned to manage our global foundation. uh, And I did that for three years. And then I was tasked with, um, I was asked actually to uh, be the company's first head of diversity and inclusion. And this was my introduction into the HR function. Prior to that, I was like many people in the business, uh, afraid of HR. I thought of HR as the Place you go to when you're in trouble. Um, and I wasn't quite excited about that gig, but there was something about the work of diversity and inclusion that intrigued me. And I was, um, always the analyst or the, you know, the philanthropy leader who was going to the Black MBA conferences, the Asian MBA conferences, the Hispanic MBA conferences as a, as a young woman of color. And I can, I can talk about um, my experience a bit later, but as a young woman of color moving up the ranks in the organization, I had seen my fair share of racial and gender and LGBTQ diversity being marginalized and sidelined in the organization. And I was just, you know, curious and committed to trying to bring more voices and experiences to the organization. I did that for 12 years. And um, after Moody's, I went on and transitioned to media and entertainment. I went to Time Warner. So that was a big career shift for me. It was a lateral move. I went into their executive search function. This was um, following my three years launching diversity and inclusion at Moody's. I had also taken all over the talent acquisition function. So I had started increasing my remit um, while I was at Moody's. And that made it a really natural transition to move into this executive search function where I was tasked with diversifying our diverse talent VP and above across the enterprise for Time Warner, which at that time, and we know media and entertainment companies have shifted quite a lot. Um, but at that time, it included Time Inc., HBO, uh, Warner Brothers, uh, Turner Inc. And so on any given day, I was learning about print media, cable media, movies, TV. It was it was it was quite an introduction to media and entertainment. I, I call it um, the period where I got my PhD in media and entertainment. <laughs> um, and so I did that for about two years, and then I was asked to consider a job at Disney. At that time, I was living in New York. The role was in LA. I had a four-year-old and a husband who was incredibly supportive. Um, and the job was as head of diversity and inclusion for the Disney ABC television group, which no longer exists because also Disney has gone through its own set of transitions. Um, but that included ABC, ABC News, um, Disney Channel, and what was then ABC Family and is now Freeform. Um, and so my family, you know, we picked up and we went to L.A. and I... Joined, uh, the team at Disney ABC. And within six months, I was asked to also take over talent acquisition. So I always joke that every job I've, I've gone to, I've, I've taken on a different talent function. Um, (laughs) even though what I, you know, what I've wanted to do has always been around integrating diversity and inclusion into all of the people and business, uh, functions of an organization. From Disney, I was, um, recruited to go to Google where I led the company's first diversity, uh, global diversity staffing uh, strategy. Um, I was responsible for a team Internationally, bringing more women, Black, and Hispanic software engineers to the company. It was an amazing ride. I did that for about two years. And then, um, and and I should say that when when I moved, uh, when I went to Google, we moved again. So we moved to San Francisco. So if you're counting, this was my second move in about five years, in less (laughs) than five years. Um, And my family wanted to come back to New York. uh, And I was recruited by Viacom to head talent acquisition with a lens on transformation for the company. And so we came back to New York. So this is move three now. Um, and uh, and we've been here ever since. Uh, we moved to Bed-Stuy, New York. I was at Viacom for about a year, um, transformed the talent acquisition function from a domestic to a global function, reorged myself a bit out of a job, which is part of my trajectory as well. Um, and then I took a year off and uh, spent some time traveling, resting, volunteering. And following that, I decided to launch a consultancy in workplace culture, uh, OJ Dominguez Ventures. I did that for about a year. It was really an amazing journey, um, a very busy one. It was when I started thinking about writing my book. um, So that was in 2019, um, early 2020. And then in 2020, the pandemic uh, hit, We were all in quarantine and I was recruited for this job advice. And this is my first full CPO role. And there was something unique about this opportunity because Nancy Dubuque, our CEO, was looking for a CPO, a chief people officer who would lead with culture and who had the experience that I had. And over the course of my career, I had worked for some of the world's most admired and largest companies, and I had been influencing All of the areas of, you know, our traditional HR areas for quite some time. I had such deep knowledge in these areas, but I had never managed them functionally myself. So the idea of being able to manage it holistically and build out a human centered culture first people strategy for a media entertainment company, again, a youth media company, um, there's something so unique about the audiences that we serve and the culture that we that we frankly shift every day with our reporting and editorial work. It was just very exciting. And so I joined on May 11th, 2020. And I have been uh, here ever since uh, during perhaps the most tumultuous times of our entire lives.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt about that, and I, I certainly have some more questions. Uh, you know, uh, on that latter point, you know, when you look at you looking back on your career progression, was was the CPO seat? kind of an end state that you saw yourself as your cause you know, you, you had a range of different, you know, TA transformation, DEIB roles, all kind of building skills and capability that, that could certainly lead to that direction. And some people like that's like, they know that's where they want to go. And they're acquiring this experience through different roles to help them get there because that's, that's kind of the vision. Other people, you know, maybe they're just kind of working on different projects and then it's the opportunity presents itself and, and that's the thing that they just, they feel that they're compelled to and drawn to. So what, what was that like for you?
0: I wish I could tell you I was that strategic. <laughs> um, for me, it was really just following my curiosities and my passions. Like I said, I was at Moody's running the our global philanthropic and corporate social responsibility initiatives. And I thought that that was going to be it. And then I had this opportunity to go to HR and launch diversity and inclusion. There was something about um, taking the job uh, at Moody's on diversity and inclusion, I, and I, I often think uh, back on that time because there was we have these rare moments in our lives when we feel like I am at the right place at the right time, and and that was it for me when I took on diversity and inclusion. It was all of a sudden a compilation of all of my academic work, all of my professional work, and I felt like this is what I'm meant to do. So for a very long time, Lars, what I was chasing was being a chief diversity officer. What I was after was just being the best diversity and inclusion officer I could be, right? As, as the work evolved, because I've been doing this for a long time, it was diversity, it was inclusion, belonging, you know, psychological safety, all of those terms. It was about doing that the best that I could. And what I loved about it, and if, if you can tell, you know, my my undergraduate degree was in international relations and women's studies, my master's is in public administration. I like multidisciplinary efforts. I like having my hands in a lot of different areas. And what diversity and inclusion did for me was that on any given day, I was helping shape and inform a people strategy, a business strategy, a marketing strategy. I never pigeonholed myself into just doing one thing. Um, because as, as my husband likes to say, I see diversity and inclusion in everything. Um, and so I have I have constantly been doing that piece of it. During my year off, when I was spending a lot of time reflecting on what I wanted to do, I did have another one of those light bulb moments where I I recognized I did not want to be a chief diversity officer. And that was when I said I wanted to be a chief people officer. And the reason why at that point was that um, I had done the role long enough to know that it gets so siloed in organizations. It gets so under-resourced, undervalued. And where I had inadvertently, because again, I will fully admit that it it was not strategic on my part, but where I had inadvertently been placed in every organization I had worked In was in this place where I always had these hybrid roles. I was DNI and I was talent. I was DNI and I was acquisition, and that always gave me a seat at tables that normally a DNI person wouldn't get a seat at. And because I had seen that and experienced that, I realized I want to be able to shape the full strategy and roadmap for this work. And I have the skill sets. There was also a moment of also, you know, there's a little bit of courage in it and self-awareness. I was like, I felt pretty confident that I had the skill sets to do what I needed to do. And because I had been, you know, dealing with uh, talent acquisition for the bulk of my career, I know how to hire good people. <laughs> I know how to <laughs> hire for the areas that are not my strength. I don't need to do everything perfectly. I don't, I'm not an expert in compensation and benefits, but I, I, I hired and have someone who is and I but I know enough I always joke with her I'm dangerous enough that I ask you a lot of questions and get you to the right place often. so I know enough to be dangerous. I don't need to be the one that's executing on that at this level in my career. Um, and so that's that's how it happened for me and and quite frankly, Lars, a lot of people did not believe that I had the capacity to be a chief people officer because I had not had the title and that's one of the challenges in the field that we're in is, you know, people getting pigeonholed into areas of expertise that may or may not be what they can or have the capacity to do. And so I remember a lot of headhunters reaching out to me about chief diversity officer roles. And I would always say, no my next role is going to be a chief people officer role. And they would sort of, you know, nod and say, "Oh, that's nice. You know, but, you know, you've never done it before. I was like, yeah, I haven't done a lot of things, but somehow I've been successful at all of them every time I try them. So I think I can do this. When I was approached for the vice job, it was a headhunter who knew me and who knew of my aspirations. And when he called me, he literally said, I've got the CPO role for you. This is the one where you're going to really shine. And he was right.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting and I'm glad that 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 individual had that, you know, uh, awareness and understanding of all the potential you brought and how that can be transformative in a CPO role. Because I think we do tend to look, you know, with the collective we, right, the industry um, tends to look, you know, linearly at a career path in terms of how that may transfer. And and I think as a whole, we're not great at like connecting all the dots of the experiences to kind of show uh, combined with the interest of an individual where that can lead. Um, and I'm I'm curious to get your thoughts. You know, the you've had a really interesting background in DEIB specifically. So even though you know you you at one point aspired to be a chief diversity officer, you always had, as you mentioned, kind of those tandem roles where it was diversity and talent, or diversity and recruiting, and it allowed you to kind of embed and and not just influence, but embed you know inclusive practices in talent and in hiring in ways that I think you know siloed. Chief diversity officer roles may have a harder time doing because they're not integrated, and I'm curious to get your thoughts. You know, is, uh, especially over the last two years, you know, many organizations have, um, you know, made publicly stated commitments to DEIB and and have brought in chief diversity officers, but haven't necessarily empowered them in a way that allows them to make a difference. And so, when you think about you know companies that are maybe now investing in leadership roles. Um, what should they be doing to ensure that person is set up to succeed and, and truly kind of integrated throughout the entire people system and process to drive the meaningful and sustainable change kind of needed to have an impact in the role?
0: I think the first, and, and I advise uh, I advise leaders on this all the time, before you hire a chief diversity officer, which is Let's be clear. Over the last couple of years, even before the aftermath of the George Floyd murder, even before that, companies had adopted this very simple formula for diversity and inclusion. You hire a person to do diversity and inclusion. You put together some employee resource groups. You put together some training, unconscious bias, you know, these one-off trainings. And, you know, and if you've got enough money and it's part of your construct as an organization, you have a nice community outreach uh, program that you know shows people you know from a PR perspective that you're helping you know under underserved and underprivileged communities. That's that is this you know little formula that most companies have been following for a long time. What that lacks is the real deep reflection on what you're trying to solve for and and how. And so you bring in chief diversity officers or diversity leads, whatever the title is in the organization. You put them. You usually layer them under someone in HR. Um, if they're lucky, they're layered under the head of HR, but usually sometimes they're layered under either talent acquisition or some other functions. It gets so deeply layered that they don't have any authority. They don't have any credibility. They don't have any proper visibility in the organization. And so these talented individuals are basically just fighting every day to be heard and to be seen. And when you have a job that is about creating access and opportunity and visibility and connection for others, it can be really damaging personally and, you know, and emotionally to do this work. Um, So my advice is is the same always. It's figure out what you're trying to solve for and think about it as you would any org design question in your organization. Where should this role truly sit? What are the resources that this role needs to truly uh, deliver? And what I found over the course of my career, Lars, is that it's not about the can we do this work, is do we have the will to do this the right way? And most organizations lack the will to invest in it properly to prepare people properly for these roles, and to prepare and build readiness to accept and adapt to the changes that are required to build truly inclusive and equitable workplaces.
1: Hey everyone, I'm excited to introduce you to the new Amplify Accelerator platform, The Amplify and redefining HR ecosystem have evolved quite a bit over the last two years, starting with a podcast, growing to a book, and now leading to a full platform aimed at developing and supporting the next generation of Chief People Officers. You know, the mission of Amplify is accelerating innovation at scale, and we now do that through HR executive search services, cohort courses, communities, jobs, and media includes the podcast and the book so you can check all of this out at amplifytalent.com and now back to the show i appreciate that point and it's probably a great segue to your book because you wrote a book to do just that um you know how companies can kind of dismantle um systemic racial uh, injustice and inequity in their workplace. And, and you mentioned, you know, 2019 is kind of 2019, 2020 is when you started writing the book. I imagine something you'd been obviously it's been a big part of your life's work, something you've been thinking about for a while. When did you hit the moment where you knew that you had to write the book, right? Because it's one, you know, you've been you've been working in a space, you've been training, you've been consulting, you know, you've been you've been working on every level of it. Um, but the book is, you know, that's 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 the next step. That's kind of taking everything you've learned. All the ideas, putting them together in a way that can really, um, you know, drive outcomes at scale, as uh, terms of kind of educating readers. Um, when when did you know you had to write the book? When when did you kind of hit that moment?
0: There were a lot of moments, Lars. Uh, you know, as when I when I started my consultancy. I started writing more. I started writing articles and it was, it was around building, frankly, my, you know, my courage muscles (laughs) that people would actually read what I wrote (laughs) and that they cared about it. Um, and, you know, over the years, I've accumulated a lot of stories, not just my own, but the stories of others. And, you know, and I'm very story driven. I come from a you know a long line of you know of storytellers, and so my my way of coaching, my way of engaging is often connecting people to you know other stories. And so I had I often would have people say you should write a book. <laughs> <Like> you have <laughs> you, you know like you you've seen and you've done so much, but I just really frankly didn't think that I was someone that people would read. And so I had to build my courage muscles, if you will, by starting to publish articles and putting them on LinkedIn, putting them on Medium, and and started you know getting some attention and some interest in that work and and getting more confident that i could do it and then i started frankly, thinking about what does my book look like? What what do I want to tell the world that hasn't been told? I'm very much of a pragmatist, Lars, I, even as I've been going through this process and there's publicists and there's all of these people trying to figure out how to position you and brand you and all of that. Um, and my message to people are like, I'm not a brand. <laughs> I'm like, I, You know, I am an executive and I am a mother and I am, you know, a person that is just trying to drive change in this work. And I want to be very clear that, you know, that's I, I didn't write a book because I want to position myself now for this big brand. I wrote a book because I believed that I could get a broader audience of people to read and connect and frankly, to build their own bravery muscles to do this work. Um, so it was just over the course of a lot of writing and thinking and, and frankly, during the, the early stages of the pandemic, I could foresee what would happen, which is immediately within the first couple of months. All budgeting for DNI went out the door. Everybody just started receding, and like, we're not gonna do these events, like we do this later. And I, I felt this energy and this and this passion in me to really, you know, write even more at that point. And to, and I was telling all the DNI folks out there, and I was telling everyone who cared, this is the time to do this work. This is not the time to step back. This is when your employees need you the most. Life is uncertain. The whole ground has been taken under us. And there are so many people who already were in volatile environments and situations in your workplace. This is not the time to stop paying attention to them. And around that time, I had already met my book agent. I had already, you know, started coming up with some ideas about what the book um, was gonna look like, and we started pitching it, and people weren't buying it. <laughs> people weren't really that interested in it. Um or some people already had some diversity books, but you know, the, a business book about diversity and inclusion, they've been done, right? they're 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 out there. Um, and and we just kept on on pushing it. And now, May eleventh, like I said, I joined Vice. on May eighteenth, George Floyd was murdered, and the entire world changed. and And there was this moment of awakening to racism that for many of us had been part of our lived experience for so long. And and there was a clarity in me of like this, if not now, when? (laughs) This is the time that we need to do this. And this is not about just a crying call for doing this work. This is about building the muscles and the skill sets to do this right. And so that's what led me to write the book and to rethink and you know and formulate you know what what it was that I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it but I always knew I always knew that I wanted people to leave you know to finish reading the book and leave with just a few things that they were going to do differently like that was that to me is that's that's my win if you leave the book with two or three things you're going to do differently and the courage and inspiration to go and do it I would feel incredibly rewarded (laughs)
1: Yeah. You know, and, and I, I appreciate that point. And I think it was interesting. I was reading an excerpt from the book and, you know, one of the comments that struck me, especially as it relates to HR is, you know, you can read an anti-racist book that doesn't make you an anti-racist activist. And I think you talk about building the, um, you know, having a few new tools in your belt, but having the, the you know, muscle memory in a lot of ways to, to act on them with consistency. And I think what, what's interesting about this, you know, we're, we're at a macro level, you know, we're, we're redesigning work itself right now. Right. We're, we're building this new world of work. And and I think when you look at the legacy of H.R. broadly, you know, it wasn't just our vocabulary. Right. Like we, we talked about diversity and diversity was often talked about as it was tied to recruiting. And we tend to be very singularly focused on that. And I think if you look at, you know, more progressive organizations or best in class teams right now. It's, you know, it's diversity, it's equity, it's inclusion, it's belonging, it's access. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're thinking differently about equity across all employees, uh, you know, using pronouns more liberally and things like that, where it's just, it's a very different mindset maybe than in the past. And I think particularly when you look at the field of HR that statistically is roughly 70% white, you know, when it comes to actually dismantling some of these systemic issues, they're designed to be invisible to people who look like me and people who are in the majority of those seats. And so when you think about the next five years for the field, right, having more tools like Inclusion Revolution, having a shift in mindset, hopefully, and a sustained commitment to that, because there's not an end state to that work. It's continual, and you have to continually re-examine and reassess and, and do that work to make a difference. Like, how do you how do you feel about you know the collective you know we in HR you know today and and kind of the path ahead of us for the next five years as it relates to you know truly building more equitable organizations and being kind of sustained to that commitment?
0: Well, I'll tell you, I, I, and I've been saying this for a long time: diversity, equity, and inclusion are core and critical skill sets for any leader in a, in in the modern work world, and. In order to, in order to do that well, that means that it's a core, a core and critical skill set for every HR person out there. And. Part of the way that I've designed my HR team advice has been, and, and, you know, this is, this has been my experiment and my opportunity to do this is that everyone on my team should be a diversity and inclusion expert. And I say this, I say this to my team all the time. I am not the only one. Obviously, they come to me and I've I've got the experience and the background, but there is no chief diversity officer advice intentionally. Yes, you could say that, you know, it's me, but I was like, I already have a title. (laughs) I'm the chief people officer. That's my responsibility. But, Everyone who's on my recruitment team is tasked with thinking about diversity, equity and inclusion as, you know, as most companies. Everyone who's on our learning and development team is tasked with thinking and integrating inclusion and, you know, and equity and belonging into everything that we do around equipping our managers and our employees to do their jobs well. My total rewards team, our, you know, our benefits and compensation and payroll are constantly thinking about equity. You know, the decisions that we make, I love it because it doesn't come from me. But I, you know, I get emails from my teams questioning decisions that certain managers are doing and saying, well, this is not equitable, Daisy, because if you look at this data, and if you look at this and that's, that's what HR is and should be into the future. So this people and culture work that we're doing, HR, whatever you want to call it, it has to integrate principles of diversity, equity and inclusion. And let's be clear, diversity is about the compositional representation in the organization. And it is our responsibility to manage that and to assess that and to work with leaders to ensure that there are no significant gaps across the way. Inclusion is about creating that workplace where people feel that they're part of the fabric of the organization, that they are connected. Belonging is that higher order state feeling, that, feeling valued feeling, you know, you can be invited to important meetings and still not feel that you can speak up and still not feel that people like you, um, you know, should be around the table. I know I'm in the C suite and I have those moments, um, from time to time. And so all of those pieces are the elements that I think the strongest HR partners, whether you are an HR business partner or one of the centers of excellence within HR will have to be thinking about connecting the dots on my, my lead for HR analytics and HR systems is constantly thinking about, well, We we use Workday as our um, as our people system. We were one of the first ones to implement, you know, pronouns in Workday. So every single one of us, when you know, when we go into Workday and I I pull up any names, there's a pronoun there. She was one of the first people, the, the the woman who leads that team, to think about building out data repositories for where in the world, we're in over 20 countries across the world, where can we report on race and ethnicity? Where is it legal to do that? Um, gender, you can do that globally, but as as you and I both know, race and ethnicity, not so much. That That's the work that they do. So they're constantly thinking with a lens of how does equity, inclusion, and belonging, yes, I reinforce it, but it comes from them. And that's that to me is what a modern day people and culture HR team looks like.
1: Yeah, I love that. And, and I think, you know, really just reinforcing that it's it's the responsibility of that. It. it doesn't matter what your title is, doesn't matter what your role is, doesn't matter what your seniority is. Uh, all of us, all of us have a role to play. And I think when we're thinking about it that way, then it's just it's fully integrated uh, and, and it's operationalized and, and it's real and it's sustainable. If we can kind of maintain that um, the book is out. It's very exciting. Where where can uh, the audience find uh, the book? Do you have any preferred booksellers? I'm sure it's available or wherever they get books. But any any preferences on your end?
0: I don't I don't have a preference. I, you know, I'm a big fan of local bookstores. I did my, you know, my first book signing in a local bookstore around the corner from my house. But the Amazons and the Barnes and Nobles, the local books, bookstores, it's on Audible as well. It's my voice. So if you like to listen instead of reading, I like to read. Um, but it's, <laughs> uh, I recorded it. Um, it is everywhere. Inclusion Revolution, uh, OJ Dominguez, um, please, please go out there and take it and, and give me feedback, let me know, review it. Um, I wanna know what works and what didn't. Um, and I'm very hopeful that um, that there, there are nuggets there for everyone to, to your point, to find, I, I, t- I say this all the time, find your voice and your role, because we all have a role to play. And sometimes we have to find our voice, our reason for, and then we find the role that we wanna play, whether it's a, as an activist, a champion, an ally, a supporter, there's a role that we can all play.
1: Yeah, the the audience uh, for the podcast is a mix of uh, people leaders, people practitioners, and business leaders, and all three of those groups should be reading this book. Um, so please get yourself a copy. Um, Daisy, uh, before we get to the lightning round, I do have one one additional question I want to ask you, which I think is, is unique to this moment in time that we're in right now. You know, as we're recording this, um, there there's conflict. Russia is you know committing war crimes in Ukraine. And and while this is a, a difficult situation for humanity, I think in media organizations, and we talked, you know, before we started recording, you know, we both worked in, in media a fair amount. Uh, there's a uniqueness to conflict because you have employees essentially who are voluntarily putting themselves in harm way to illuminate the realities that are happening on the ground in the war zone and putting themselves at risks. And you know, we we've already lost. Um, you know, colleagues from the, the media um, world uh, in Ukraine specifically. And so as, as a chief people officer kind of leading the entire organization, which includes employees, again, who are putting themselves in harm's way in a conflict zone, how do you think about supporting those kind of unique um, uh, emotional, mental health, um, stress, burdens and trauma that comes with that kind of a workplace?
0: We think about it all the time, Lars. And I and I was mentioning to you and, and uh as we were preparing for today's discussion. Um, just this week, I was asked early on Monday morning to join our weekly global news meeting to come in as the HR representative and share with teams our and remind our teams about all all the benefits that we have for them regarding wellness and well-being um and mental health. Um, they are reporting. Um, and being a collective voice on so many compelling platforms and um, this you know th- this impact sinks in in many different ways and at different times for all of us and I couldn't be more proud and as I, t- I told them I couldn't be more proud of you know how our reporting has been sobering deep and incredibly humanizing But that also takes a toll on you, whether you're the one reporting on it, whether you're the one cutting the pieces, whether you're the one, you know, in Ukraine or whether you're the one in New York or in the UK. You know, there are there are there are long, long days of of angst and pain. And and part of what I reminded our teams In that moment, was you know these are the times to you know reach out to your loved ones, to take time to call your family and friends, um, to you find what sustains you during uncertain times, and to not wait for moments of crisis um, for asking for the help that's available to them, and then as as we always do, remind them of everything that we have put together from our security and safety team to our HR teams uh, and to the outreach that we do. Um, we're constantly thinking about this. We're constantly thinking um, the balance, Lars, of supporting someone that has been on the ground and coming back to offices. But most of the time, we don't know that they've been on the ground. For their own safety, we don't know that they're on the ground because yeah. they, you know, there's part of their safety requires that there be security and confidentiality about where they are. But when they come back to offices, they are our responsibility to make sure that we're reaching out to them, extending a lending hand, reminding them, you may, you know, you may need the help now, or you may need the help three months from now, but when you need it, we're here to support you. And that is a, 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 an additional layer. And it requires the HR business partners in particular that support our news teams and our editorial teams um, to add that extra layer of sensitivity and support. Uh, to the teams that are really putting themselves in harm's way every single day to to share the stories that you know that connect us to what's happening in the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's such a, a uniqueness and an acuteness, I think, to the the trauma in that situation. I think it's a good reminder for HR leaders in general. I mean, this is you know the last several years have seen a cascading series of traumatic events that have impacted our you know society, but our, our workforce especially. And so, we're, the more we can Reinforce our EAP programs, mental health programs, uh, make those very front and center invisible. uh, And and don't just assume that, you know, because you made an announcement at the beginning of the year that you have this thing that people are going to remember that you have this thing. So wherever you can reinforce. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I remind people about our EAP and our and we actually created a, a separate mental health and mental well-being one pager that we literally just send every couple of weeks just to remind people, like, you know, like, it may be hard to find, but here's here's where we are. And it's also, Lars, about destigmatizing asking for help. And Absolutely. I would think that's one of the many things that we've learned these past two years, but, but we've still been conditioned to not ask for help to hold things in. I think this generation, I you know, I work for a youth media company and I will say Gen Zers don't feel that stigma. <laughs> they they do ask for their their mental well-being days. They you know, they 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 do um ask for what they need for the most part, but it is still hard and we have to destigmatize it and and show care. Just really show deep deep human care. And that that's something that we prioritize at every stage of every every piece of our work.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. And role modeling that behavior, particularly from leadership, goes a long way because if they people can see their leaders, their C-suite taking advantage of some of these programs and talking about it right openly, it it, it creates that environment where people it's, it's a safer environment, I think, for people to participate and take care of their own needs uh, when they see that kind of role modeled and reinforced um, at the top. So, um, Daisy, I really appreciate you sharing uh, your career journey, sharing about the book. Definitely check out Inclusion Revolution. Get yourself a copy. And we close every episode with a lightning round just to help the audience get to know you a little bit better. So are you ready to jump in? Yes, let's do it. All right. Uh, We always kick things off with music. So I'm checking out your Spotify playlist. Uh, Who I learned are your top three artists on heavy rotation right now?
0: Oh, my goodness. Rosalia all over her bad bunny and Juan Luis Guerra always at the top. (laughs)
1: All right. All right. Uh, how about uh, streaming? Uh, you probably don't have a ton of time for for TV, I imagine, right now, but what are your streaming shows? Uh, what, what is it you're watching? What oh my is gosh. Just binge? I,
0: I actually watch TV all the time. It's what comes Oh, out. good. <laughs> I, just, I, I just finished um, uh, binge watching um, Inventing, what is, it's, I'm going to call it wrong, Inventing Anna,
1: Um, And yeah, yeah. Yes,
0: um, I was watching This Is Us last night, the last episode, and Grey's Anatomy. I'm an ABC, you know. I was at ABC, so I love my Shonda Rhimes shows. Yeah. Um, And I really, literally, am. um, I'm watching with my daughter and my husband. Better Things, obsessed with it. Um, It's a fun show. So there's both family shows and just my own uh, fun and guilty pleasures. (laughs)
1: All right, uh, we're reinventing your career. I know you've been uh, you've worked across talent, uh, you're an author, you can no longer do those things. Uh, what would you be doing?
0: I just, I, I love talking and be a talk show host. <laughs> <laughs> just like, I just, I want to have my Oprah moment of giving everyone a car, <laughs> everyone gets a
1: car. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I feel like, uh, you know, that, that may be a future that's open to you. You know, I, I think, uh, don't, you know, don't, don't sleep on that one. <laughs> um, and Daisy, uh, last question for you. Who is one HR leader who you admire and why?
0: Oh my goodness. So many, um, you know, the first one that comes to mind right now is Erica Irish Brown. She is the chief diversity officer at Citibank, has been in diversity space for a long time. Erica was one of my first friends when I started doing this work. She was the head of diversity staffing at Bank of America back in the day, nearly two decades ago. And she has been doing this work consistently for, as I have for the last two decades. And I just, I love the grit, um, the grace and the passion that she shows in, in her work every single day.
1: Well, Daisy, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Uh, It's been great getting to know you a bit better, excited for your book's success, and uh, definitely wishing you all the best.
0: Thank you so much, Lars. Really appreciate you and everyone for listening.
1: Thanks for tuning into this episode of Redefining HR. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, the Redefining HR book, or free resources, be sure to check out redefininghr.com. And if you dig this podcast, why don't you share it with your CEO, your executive team, and your friends to help them discover what Redefining HR is all about. If you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on whatever podcast delivery vehicle your ears prefer. See you next week.